We have been preaching through the Bible, and today we will be completing our journey through the Old Testament as we turn our attention to the book of Malachi. As we have learned over the past 12 weeks, the 12 minor prophets have a common thread that unites them all thematically and theologically. What do the prophets say? What do we learn from them if they were to identify common themes and features? The minor prophets teach us, among many other things, these few important things. Israel and the nations around her, including the great empires, Assyria and Babylon, have sinned against the Lord and against one another. Therefore, Israel, when we say Israel here, we are speaking of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms. Therefore, Israel and the nations will face the day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh, the Lord will judge Israel and the nations often using a specific nation as his instrument of justice to dispense judgment. For instance, the Lord used the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. The Lord used the Babylonians to judge Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah. The Lord used Persia to judge Babylon and by way of Cyrus the Great decree, brought the people back to Judah and to Jerusalem from the exile in Babylon. So the day of the Lord should not just be understood as a single day of God's wrath and justice, but also as the continuous display of God's righteousness and justice at various times in human history, leading to the ultimate inauguration of God's forever new world and new world order. After the Lord judges Israel and the nations, He will restore Israel to the land, honoring the covenant the Lord had made with Abraham, and through a restored, renewed Israel, offer salvation to the nations of the world. So in the story that the books of the prophets tell us, we meet the Lord, the prophets whom He has called to speak forth in His name, the nations of the world, including the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the sinful majority in Israel that cannot escape God's wrath because of their sin, whether it be idolatry, injustice, exploitation of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Israel will not be able to escape God's wrath. But the righteous remnant whom the Lord will preserve will carry forth God's purpose in human history. In the story that the books of the minor prophets tell us, we learn about the fall of Israel to Assyria and the mass deportations. We learn about the decline of Egypt, the fall of Assyria to Babylon, the fall of Judah to the Babylonians, how they attacked the nation, destroyed the city walls, plundered the temple, and took people captives back to Babylon. We are also told about the fall of Babylon to the Persians, the rise of Cyrus the Great, God's servant, God calls him my servant, the return of the exiles in waves, the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of the temple worship, and the rebuilding of the city walls under Nehemiah. The prophets Hosea Joel, Amos, 
Obadiah and Jonah address the problem of sin in Israel and in the nations of the world. The prophet Micah presents the solution to sin. On the other hand, the prophets Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah remind us that the Lord will punish Israel and the nations for their sin. Some prophets identify the problem, sin. Other prophets introduce divine justice, punishment for sin against God and against one another. Finally, the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi assure the remnant of the Lord, those that have returned from the exile, the promise of God's restoration. So that pretty much sums up the minor prophets. This brings us to the book of Malachi. In our Bibles, the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Chronicles, just one book. Unlike in the English Bible, they do not have First and Second Chronicles. In many ways, it makes sense that the book of Malachi is the last book of the prophets because it contains prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, the messenger of the Lord, and it speaks about the promises of the future, for the future. The prophet Malachi, we don't know much about him, ministered to the people of Judah who have returned from the exile. These people have come back in waves, rebuilt the temple, abandoned it for a while, and through the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, came together to rebuild it, restore temple worship, and through Nehemiah's efforts, built the walls and established the gates. Now they have the semblance of a city. They are not as populated, as well-known, and as stable as before, but the city walls are up, the doors are in place, the temple has been rebuilt, even though not to the extent of the temple that Solomon had built, but God promises the glory of the latter house, the second temple, will be greater than the former, the first temple that Solomon built. Everything's looking good on paper, but in reality, things have started to fall apart. It is in such a time that God calls Malachi to speak to those that have returned from the exile. In spite of the temple worship being restored, there is a problem in Judah. People have become spiritually lazy, complacent, perhaps even concealed in their contempt. Because of this malaise, this problem in society, God calls His prophet to speak to the people who are not living the life that they were called to live. In spite of the Babylonian invasion, in spite of the destruction of the city, in spite of the plundering of the temple, the stolen vessels of gold and silver, and being brought back to Babylon as captives, in spite of God's faithfulness in raising up Cyrus to bring the people back home under Zerubbabel, and giving them Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read more about the history of this time in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and even Esther. In spite of all of this, people have selective memory. Just as in Deuteronomy, the first generation that left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea on their way to the land of promise, forgot everything they were meant to remember, but remembered everything they were meant to forget, the same disease plagues those that have returned from exile in Babylon. 
a renovated city, restored walls, a rebuilt temple, renewed worship, life returning to what it used to be before it all fell apart was not enough for people to love God, to trust Him, and to worship Him. They had become complacent, reluctant even, an outright passive rebellion, refusing to worship God who had given them a glorious second chance. Malachi speaks to such a people, people who have returned from the exile and are now before a rebuilt temple, invited to a renewed time of worship, but Malachi identifies a problem. Just because the temple has been rebuilt and people have the opportunity for renewal does not mean they're excited about obeying the Lord or following His commands. So the book of Malachi, a small book, brings Judah to trial before God. He identifies problems in society and he issues a warning. Much like we all have received a warning from an authority figure at some point in our life. If you fail to change, if you cannot bring yourself to stop doing what you're not supposed to do and begin doing what you're supposed to be doing, punishment, once again, lies in wait. What Malachi wants the people to know is a new temple means nothing if people do not have a new attitude in life and in worship. A new temple serves no purpose if people still live, think, and act the way they once did. So during the ministries of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, people were receptive to the Lord's commands. They did what the prophets called them to do. They repented, they rebuilt the temple, and they restored worship. But in the succeeding years, somewhere between 80 to 90 years, some scholars say even up to 100 years. As time went on, people began to become complacent, lost their passion, began to compromise on certain spiritual values. And the same evils that once brought about judgment are slowly sprouting everywhere and if this remains unchecked, judgment will once again fall upon God's children. There is a pattern here. It's a pattern we've seen all throughout Israel's history, especially in the book of Judges. Life is comfortable People take God for granted. They violate the covenant and covenant commands. They chase after other gods and goddesses. The Lord is displeased with His people and He delivers them into the hands of their oppressors. The oppressors, whoever that might be, the Philistines, the Midianites, the Moabites, they rise up against God's people. 
Later on in history, it is the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the people experience judgment. While they are suffering, oppressed by their wicked rulers, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord hears their cry, raises up a judge. The judge delivers them from the hands of their oppressors. And the land has peace for a certain period of time. Unfortunately, this period of time of peace and worship and obedience is short-lived because the disease renews itself in the people. In their time of comfort, when their food and safety are guaranteed. There's plenty to eat. There is no threat to life or limb. Once again, the people slip up. And this happens in cycles over and over again. In many ways, it's not that different from our own walk with God. We experience distress. We fast. We pray. We seek intercession from others in the church. We meet with our spiritual leaders. We devote ourselves to the Word of God. We wait on God to speak to us. We repent and we change our behavior, our life. And this new commitment to God, to His Word, and to His worship unveils a new season of physical, spiritual, and financial prosperity in our lives. Once life becomes comfortable, we slowly start to slip up. Sounds familiar. At least in my life, it has been. So Malachi wants the people to know these sinful patterns will be your undoing. You've been evil, you've been wicked, and the Lord brought Assyria and Babylon and used those great nations to dispense justice. And eventually, God judged those nations as well. Assyria with Babylon, Babylon with Persia. And now you're back in the land with a brand new opportunity to embrace the covenant, to worship the Lord of the covenant, and to live the life you were always meant to live. Unfortunately, the reality of Malachi's time was when he started prophesying, when he started preaching, if you will, when his ministry picked up, temple worship in Jerusalem had become corrupt. Who corrupted the worship? The priests, not the people. The priests who are meant to safeguard the way Israel worships God they themselves became a part of the problem. And now temple worship had become corrupt, and it was a disgrace, an affront to God's divine dignity. The priests who are meant to be paragons of virtue have now become examples of what it means to be rebellious, disobedient, and corrupt. To add to this problem, divorce in society became rampant. Malachi tells us people began to divorce their wives to marry younger women. They would walk away from their covenant relationship with God and their spouse, who had married them in their youth, when life was beautiful, bore them children help them raise a wonderful family, and now that age starts to reveal itself on their faces, the men would abandon the wives of their youth 
to marry younger women, divorcing them, finding some small excuse to pursue their selfish desire. It is in these times that Malachi's ministry became prominent in Israel. Everything looked good on the surface, but things were unraveling inside. In many ways, Israel was going backwards. There was no progress. They were returning to their evil ways. Instead of forging forward with God in a new city rebuilt, in a new temple rebuilt, in a newly established order of worship, they began to retrace their steps that once scattered them all over the Assyrian Empire and put them in Babylon. How many times would the children of God do this to themselves? So after the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, people began to abandon their way of life. They approved the covenant approved way of life. So whatever progress they had made through the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah and the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah has been compromised. It has gone to waste. So now you have this unhealthy reality in Israel. One of those painful realities is Israel does not believe in God's love. They doubt God's love. Why? Because they were not rich. The way they understood God's love is if the Lord loves us, then we should have been mighty, we should have been wealthy, we should have been popular, we should have been popular and famous. But Israel is still a province. They have their religious and spiritual freedom to worship God, but they're still under a great nation. Their lives are much better than in the past and during the exile, but they're not quite what people expected it to be. Their expectations were one thing, and the reality of their experience was another thing. So, they concluded that because we are not where we need to be, perhaps God does not love us. So God reiterates His love for the nation, saying, I have loved Jacob through his prophet. I chose you. You, Jacob, not Esau, your brother, but I chose you. So while they suspected that they did not have the support of the Lord, God loved His people. He was working in them and amidst of them and through them, but they were impatient and blindsided to God's mercy and to God's love. Because they were disappointed with God, since they were not what they were supposed to be or they thought they should be by now, they took it out in the way they worshipped God. In a way, you could say they were trying to get back at God with their reluctant worship. Why should we give you what is mandated by the law when you are not giving to us what we want from you. In many ways, it is a modern relationship. What's in it for me? 
If I call you my Lord, if I identify myself as your son, as your daughter, belonging to the family of God, what's in it for me? If I go to church, if I sign up and volunteer in a ministry and serve in my church, if I forgive my enemies and love my neighbor and then extend kindness and generosity to those that are suffering and hurting and share the gospel with those that are lost and broken without Jesus Christ, if I do all of this, what do I get in return? What's in it for me? So worship is not an avenue where the worshiper is transformed by the one whom he or she worships. Worship now becomes a transactional relationship. I do this for you, God Almighty. Now, what will you do for me? So the premise of our prayer the foundation of our devotion, the real intent of us meditating upon God's Word, the hidden agenda behind our worship, our service in church, our participation in the life of our communities, both Christian and social. The real reason is not because we want to worship God who is worthy of our worship, but because we want to use worship as an excuse to get what we want. So, we imagine God to be this holy Santa Claus that has lists, a good list and a bad list. So everything we do, our works, our agenda, is to get on God's good list. So we keep receiving from Him all the things we want, all the things that other people have that we also want for ourselves because we covet, and even things we do not need just because. The people of Malachi's generation and our generation, we have similarities. And it's not so shocking. Human nature hasn't changed much from the time of the Old Testament to the time of Jesus to the time of the apostles and the disciples to the time of the early church to the time of Reformation to the time of the great revivals all the way to now. So, the corrupt priesthood and the reluctant masses in Judah disdained worship of the Lord. They went through the motions, but their heart was not involved in it. What did they do? How did they show their displeasure? How did their displeasure reflect, manifest itself? Malachi explains to us, you see, in the book of Leviticus, Israel was told what sort of animal to bring and in what sort of condition it needs to be. In direct violation of the law of the Lord, the people of Malachi's time were bringing crippled and worthless animals, animals they could get nothing out of. You can't sell it. You can't exchange it. You can't eat it. 
What is it good for? God. Because if you can get something out of it, you keep it. But if you can get nothing out of it, you go through the motions, offer it to God, and hopefully earn a blessing in return. They brought crippled and worthless animals as sacrifices to the temple. But in their arrogance, they wanted God to accept their worthless sacrifice, be pleased, and bless them for their meaningless, empty devotion. Some went even further. They considered worship to be a waste of time. At some point in our walk with God, we may have felt this way. What's the point in praying if God will not answer my prayer? What's the point in praying if I do not receive what I ask for? Previously I prayed and I asked I did not receive. Recently I've prayed and I asked I did not receive. So why bother? Because prayer is meant to earn us something, not the presence of God, because there is no commercial value to the presence of God for most people. Something tangible, something pretty, something expensive, something valuable, something we can show off, talk about, boast, or display in our lives, in our homes, and everywhere else. So worship that does not result in something tangible from God is a waste of our time. What's in it for me, God? If I bring you the best of my animals, if I follow Levitical laws and bring you the best of my flock, best of my fields and my farms, the best in my life, but in the end, I have nothing to show for it. Why give it to you when I can keep it for myself? Most of you that have heard sermons from Malachi, you probably have heard sermons about tithing. I'm not going to go there. Instead, I want to devote my attention to worship. Tithing is part of our worship. It's not independent of our worship. It is part of our worship. So when we speak about worshiping God, giving is a part of it. But I want to pay more attention to the content of our hearts than the content of our wallets and our bags. So people were thinking, worship is a waste of our time because there is nothing in it. For us, we get nothing back. Malachi says to the people, the Lord wants you to know that such a mindset is unacceptable. And the longer you live in this mindset, the more trouble you invite over yourselves. We can understand the people falling apart. What about the priests? The priests were just the same, if not worse. Malachi says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, that the priests have no reverence for God. How can you train, teach, mentor, set an example to someone on how to revere God if you yourself have no reverence for Him. To make their lives easier, the priests went one step forward. When they spoke about God's standards for righteousness, for life in society, 
in the land. They lowered the standards deliberately so they too can live a compromised life. Because if the standard I present before people is great, I'm held by my words. My life must be aligned with my teaching. If it is not, I'm a hypocrite. But if you lower the standards, and if you deliberately teach the wrong thing, something that is easy to follow, then you come off looking great, meeting a lesser challenge. So the corrupt priesthood lied about God's standards for the nation. And as such, the Lord humiliated the priests. Chapter 2, verse 9. It's not just compromised worship and a corrupt priesthood, but there are other problems in society as we learn from reading Malachi. A failure of the basic unit of society, the family. When marriages fall apart, society starts to crumble. So in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord says, A man who does evil, who finds an excuse, cooks up an excuse to abandon the wife of his youth, to divorce her and to walk away from his commitment to her before the Lord, Malachi says, He covers his garment with violence. Later on in chapter 3, Malachi talks about how the people of the land have robbed God by withholding their tithe and their offering. So as a punishment, because they saw relationship as a quid pro quo relationship and they withheld from God what is rightfully due to Him, the Lord also withheld blessings from the land. Chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. Now, here's the most blatant accusation against the Lord. The people accused God. That's right. You heard it right. They accused God of blessing the wicked. Because they did not have what they wanted from God, they accused God, you bless the wicked. Why? Because the wicked seem to get richer and richer, and we the righteous, fancy thinking, are poor. Their self-righteousness perceived themselves to be more righteous than everyone and gave them the audacity to accuse God of favoring the wicked. You can imagine God's response. The day of the Lord. Judgment, where God will dispense His justice because He's holy and righteous. So as evil creeps back into the land, the Lord reminds His people through the prophet that He will purge uncleanness from the land. He will cleanse the land of wickedness and evil. That's when we learn about the messenger of the covenant. An Elijah-type figure. And this messenger, whom we know to be John the baptizer in the New Testament, this messenger, this Elijah-type figure, will help cleanse society, the land, of evil. He will call people to repentance just as the prophets before him have. And Jesus confirms in Matthew chapter 11 that this messenger is John the baptizer. 
When you read the story of John the baptizer, his life reflects the life of the prophets before him. His speech, his demeanor, and his general attitude towards corrupt and wicked society. And as the messenger of the Lord, John the baptizer prepares the nation, the Israelites, many in the nation, not all believed him. Some were offended by him, which is why eventually he was assassinated, martyred, killed. This messenger will draw the people who have wandered away and squandered their calling back to God. And we learn in Malachi that the Messiah of God, only he can transform the nation, turn the hearts of the people back to God, not temporarily, but permanently. So in many ways, Malachi and the prophets, they provide answers to several questions. As one scholar puts it, these are the three ultimate why questions. Why did the nation perish? The simple answer is idolatry, oppression, greed, pride, injustice, ungodly politics, among other sins in the nation. If we read the prophets, everything Israel could do wrong, she did. Every law she could break, she broke. Every evil she could be a part of, she was. And so she experienced judgment. The prophets were persecuted and punished for telling the truth. And the false prophets for reiterating what the king or the establishment wanted them to proclaim were rewarded. When good people are punished and bad people are rewarded, judgment comes knocking on the door, whether it is in the Old Testament or today in our society. The second ultimate why question is, why do we have hope for the future? And the simple answer is, the prophets tell us, because God made a covenant with Abraham, and God is faithful to the very end. Even if people have abandoned the covenant and walked away and failed to be faithful, God remains faithful. And a faithful God, steadfast in His love, faithful in His promise, will guard the covenant He has made with His servant Abraham. And one day, His Son, the Messiah, will bring the nation and the nations back to God. And this Messiah, as some prophets tell us, is the servant of the Lord. Isaiah, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, so on and so forth. The third ultimate why question is, why must we believe in God? Because God is just. He's merciful and loving. He forgives our sin if we heed the call of the prophets to turn away from our wicked ways and our wicked deeds. If we repent, our relationship with God will be restored. I would like to draw your attention to a few verses from the first chapter of Malachi before we close in prayer. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, 
says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Adam says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Malachi says to Judah, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God is not a territorial deity. He's God of all creation. His sovereignty, His supremacy, His glory, and His righteousness is not confined to the boundaries of this small province in Persia. This small nation that was attacked and overcome by greater nations. God is not the Lord of a few people. He's God of all the earth. And as such, God uses Israel and the nations of the world to carry forth His purpose in human history. Malachi says, starting verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. And the rhetorical question, If then I am a father, where is my honor? A son honors his father. If I am a father to you, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, my respect? You priests who despise my name. This is addressed to the corrupt priesthood. By offering polluted food upon my altar, the priests have corrupted worship in Israel. But the priests have the audacity to say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Is that not a violation of the law? So here's the suggestion by way of the prophet Malachi. Present those corrupt gifts, those lame animals, those sick animals. Present them to your governor, your political authorities. Will he accept? Will he show favor? The answer to the rhetorical question is no. If you give to other people in your life that are authorities, the same thing you wish to give to God, will they accept those gifts? See, in life, the more we value a relationship, the more we love a person, the more we value our relationship with that person, the more thought we put into our gift. But people we do not know, people we do not care about, strangers, people who are not even acquaintances, we don't put much thought into the gift. Only special people do. The gift reflects the heart of the giver, not the status quo of the one who receives it. That's a wrong way to give. Our worship as worshipers reflects our hearts. So what we bring before God, tangible, intangible, how we bring it before God is a reflection of our hearts, of our love. 
of our devotion to God. So in verse 10, the Lord says through His prophet, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. And here comes a harsh statement. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. Cheap people offer cheap trinkets, passing them off as expensive gestures. Loving people put their entire life into the words they speak, the gifts they give, and the gestures they make. Sadly, that was not the case in Judah. So we read in chapter 1, verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the Lord says, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Everywhere else, outside the boundaries where God's chosen people live, the nations dread the Lord. But God's own people take Him for granted. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. As we read through the book of Malachi, three things become apparent. And it is these three things I want us to reflect on. The Lord does not need our worship. He does not crave it. He's not greedy for it. He's not dependent on it for survival. More prayer does not inflate God and less praise does not deflate Him. God's not a balloon. He's holy and righteous. More worship does not grow Him in glory, add to His worth. And less worship does not diminish His sovereignty or His righteousness. The whole point of worship is not that we want to change God, improve on God, increase who He is and what He has by our worship, but our worship as we come before our loving Heavenly Father, holy and righteous, Our worship changes us. Any worship that does not transform the worshiper is lip service. You and I cannot worship God and not go through transformation. You and I cannot walk into the holy presence of our God and not be convicted of sin and be called to repentance. We can walk into a human presence and walk out just the same as we were before, but we cannot do that with God. Not if we give ourselves to true worship. The Lord does not cease to be God if we cease our worship. He remains who He is, unchanged as He is, 
as he was, as he will be throughout eternity. The second important thing is our worship reflects our lives. What does my worship say about me? What does your worship say about you? What does it communicate to God and to the world around us? When the world sees me worshiping, what does the world see in it? Does it see a hidden agenda or the pure delight of a child falling in love with his heavenly Father over and over again? While our Worship reflects the attitude of our hearts. It must also, to remain true worship, reflect who God is and change nothing, attempt to change nothing about His Word, His prescribed law for approaching Him. We are told that without holiness, no one can see God. But we regularly saunter around, nonchalantly walk into His presence, living a life of sin and wickedness, and hope to be confronted and receive God's blessing. As part of our right worship to God, what we give to God must be in accordance with what is prescribed as worthy in His sight. We cannot give what we want to give and hope that God would be okay with it. That's not how it works. We cannot have a take it or leave it relationship with God. With people, to a certain extent, perhaps that is possible, but with God, that is not possible at all. This take it or leave it will unleash dire consequences upon our lives. Finally, an unholy, incomplete, Contemptuous, reluctant offering cannot tarnish God. But it dishonors Him and endangers us as worshipers. So, as we stand before this great God whom we worship, our worship must be an affirmation of who God is. And we have to devour Scripture to find more about who God is because the Bible tells us about Him. And also an acknowledgement of what He has done, not just for us, but in time, in history, personally in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our homes, and a larger scale in the world around us. In a few days, we go back to in-person worship in Lighthouse, in CityGate. As a pastor, I'm excited. Yes, there are challenges, logistical challenges brought about by the pandemic and spiritual challenges. But at the same, I'm excited to be able to see my spiritual family, as I'm certain you all are. There are some people I haven't seen in nearly two years. Children that I once carried in my arms are now taller, 
older, some almost as tall as I am. So in the coming weeks, it would not just be an opportunity to renew our bonds of worship with God whom we love, adore, and worship. It's also a time where we renew our relationship with one another. In many ways, we need to catch up face-to-face, hopefully keeping physical distance from each other, wearing our masks. We hope to catch up in person because communication, when you see the other person's face, is entirely different. So I'm excited to open the sanctuary doors and to stand by there and greet everyone that comes in and greet everyone that goes out. While we're excited about seeing one another, going back to what was important for our lives, worshiping God in the beauty of His sanctuary, we also have to learn how to give ourselves completely in corporate worship. Because for the past few months, we've been worshiping in the privacy of our homes. We've been praying in our prayer closets. And some of us live with families, so other people get to see how we worship. But most of us live by ourselves, so no one gets to see how we worship. And as some have confessed to me, some have lost the habit of worshiping. They wake up late because they know they can catch the live stream as a video later on. Sometimes they watch other live streams, nothing wrong with that. They're great men and great women of God teaching and preaching. It's always good to listen to God's Word from another person. We hear something we haven't heard. But as we enter God's sanctuary, What will we be bringing? Reluctance? An agenda? Lord, I present myself to you in your sanctuary. Keep me safe. Get me a promotion. A new job. Something new. A home, a car, or the possibility of an exotic vacation. If that's the reason why we come to worship, We've lost sight of why we're called to worship. But if you go to church, or if you wake up early, get excited about worshiping God with your brothers and your sisters spread across the city and this country and around the world, your excitement is also your act of worship. Just as your reluctance and my reluctance dishonor God. So, these coming Sundays, whether you choose to stay home and worship from there with your families, or you choose to come to the sanctuary, to the church where you call your spiritual home, Whether you worship God from your homes or from your church, let the teaching of Malachi be important and before you. Worship God with your hearts. Hold nothing back. Worship God with who you are and what you have. Giving to God what is rightfully Him, starting with your heart and then your time, your talent, and your treasure. So that as we stand before God in our living rooms, in our lanai's, or in the sanctuary, our Father who loves us with an everlasting love, looks upon us as we worship Him in spirit and truth 
and he finds delight and his delight becomes a blessing to us. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we're all experts about how others should worship. We have mentored, we have taught, we have pointed out problems in other people's styles of worship. But sometimes, the principle we hold as important for others, we fail to put into practice. Today, we turn our eyes upon God and our attention to our lives. It is not about my brother or my sister who does or does not worship the way we believe he or she should be worshiping today. It's all about us as we stand before you. You are holy. You are righteous. We call ourselves your children. We pray, our Father, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart and the content of our lives be acceptable in your sight as we lift up our voices in praise and worship and give generously, not reluctantly, cheerfully of all that we are and all that we have to honor you, our Father, who has given his Son to us. Father, today, we join our brothers and our sisters wherever they are in ascribing glory and honor not because you are in desperate need of it but because you are worthy of glory and honor now and forever and for this reason we worship you for this reason we call you Father for this reason, we proclaim ourselves your children in obedience, in glad surrender, in wholehearted worship, holding nothing back. Receive our praise, receive our worship, receive our life as just sacrifice, reflecting the gratitude of our hearts. We praise you, Father. You are worthy. You always were. You are now. And you forever will be. Blessed be your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.